This is the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon will be updating you on campus news, and then I'll be delivering local news. After that, we'll be hearing from KCSU Assistant Sports Director Jonathan Gillum. Then, Ivy will be speaking to Representative Brianna Titone about a new bill on broadband access. Then, Cuddle will be delivering some national news, and we'll be hearing a recent episode of Takes from the Anthropocene. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 and technology. To conclude the show, I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to my weekly newscast at KCSU. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is our seventh week here at Colorado State University. COVID saliva testing is still available at Mac Gym, Moby Arena parking lot, and the Veterinary Teaching Hospital on South Campus. This is available to all students, faculty, and staff. The ACT Human Rights Film Festival will be held virtually through March 19th to 28th. This will screen a dozen feature-length documentaries and several short films, according to Jeff Dodge of CSU's College News. Live events will also be held virtually with the opening night screening of Duty Free, a documentary about an adventure 75-year-old Rebecca Danagelius takes with her son as her guide, Cian Pierre Regis, after facing ageism and being fired from her lifelong job. According to Maria Thomas of CSU's College News, Colorado State Forest Services Nursery, and CSU students are playing a huge role in restoring Colorado's forests after a devastating wildfire season. Students from the Warner College of Natural Resources at CSU play a major role in growing over 100,000 seedlings each year. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. And always make sure to tune in to KCSU. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to 90.5 FM. Hello there. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and here's your local news for today. Coloradoans age 60 and up and some essential workers will be eligible to get the COVID-19 vaccine on March 5th. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, what is promised to be the final change in Colorado's COVID-19 vaccine prioritization plan, Governor Jared Polis announced Friday that some essential workers will have to wait until the end of March to be eligible for the vaccine while the state moved up the eligibility for older Coloradoans. Current supply protections show the general population could become eligible for the vaccine as soon as late April or early May, Polis said. Under the state's new Phase 1B.3, beginning March 5th, here's who will be eligible for a coronavirus vaccine. Anybody age 60 and older, anyone with two or more high-risk health conditions, agricultural workers, including employees at JBS and Cargill, and grocery store employees. The high-risk health conditions that qualify someone are as follows. Anybody with cancer that is undergoing uh, treatment or receiving treatment in the last month, chronic kidney disease, COPD, diabetes, Down syndrome, specific heart conditions such as heart failure, cardiomyopathies, coronary heart disease, and several valvular congenital heart diseases, obesity, pregnancy, sickle cell disease, solid organ transplants, people with disabilities who require direct care in their home, or people with disabilities that prevent them from wearing masks. Officials are also saying that the following people will become eligible in late March with a goal set at March 21st. 
anyone age 50 and older, anyone with at least one high-risk health condition, students facing higher education and staff, food and restaurant employees, manufacturing workers, U.S. Postal Service employees, public and specialized transportation employees, public health employees, human services employees, people providing direct services to Coloradoans experiencing homelessness, frontline journalists, select local and state government employees, and adults who received a placebo in the COVID-19 vaccine trial. After that phase of people have been vaccinated, the general public will become eligible for the vaccine. While the vaccine could become available to anyone who wants one as soon as late April or early May, eligibility will depend on vaccine supply. If supply is still limited, Polis said that the state may open up eligibility based on age group first, with those age 40 and older first, and then those ages 16 through 39. A Loveland church and Fort Collins manufacturers were the largest among 15 new COVID-19 outbreaks reported by the Colorado and Larimer County Health Departments. According to Pat Ferrier and J.C. Marmaduke at the Coloradoan, the new outbreaks brought Larimer County to 73 active outbreaks as of Friday, up from 64 the previous week. A few larger outbreaks shifted to resolved status in the past week, including the outbreak at Fort Collins' Center at Rock Creek Skilled Nursing Facility and Loveland's Greenhouse Homes at Marisol Skilled Nursing Facility. COVID-19 cases at a facility are considered an outbreak once at least two cases are confirmed within a 14-day period. The largest newly reported outbreak last week was at LifeSpring Covenant Church at 743 South Docero uh, Do Drive, Loveland. It reported 20 positive cases of COVID-19. The state confirmed the outbreak February 22nd. The other larger new outbreak reported last week is at the Colorado Metal Manufacturing. 903 Buckingham Street in Fort Collins. The metal fabrication plant reported nine cases among workers. Owner Greg Danson said most have recovered, but a couple are still finishing their quarantines and will return to work Monday. The state confirmed the outbreak on February 16th. Other newly reported outbreaks last week included fewer than five cases each. Locations include Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Lake Loveland Dermatology, Pinnacle Consulting, Colorado Microcircuits, Winona Elementary School, Harmony Skin and Wellness, Good Samaritan Society's Fort Collins Village, a Jimmy John's, Rio Grande Mexican Restaurant, Summit Plant Laboratories, Asian Construction, Berthoud Elementary School, and Lazy Dog Restaurant. That's all I have for right now. We're about to go on a quick break before we hear from our sports team. And in about three minutes, we'll be hearing from Colorado House Representative Brianna Titone. Stay tuned! KCSU does not only provide excellent content for your airwaves, but it also provides excellent content for your internet. Go to kcsufm.com for KCSU's latest in-studio performances, podcasts, album reviews, sports wrap-ups, and more. Go ahead and bookmark it. kcsufm.com.
Hello, good afternoon, Northern Colorado and KCSU listeners. It's Jonathan Gillen for KCSU Sports. And we're coming off another eventful Ram Sports Weekend. Beginning with Friday, the track and field championships happened at the peak U.S. Air Force Academy. And the results are still pending. Softball lost to Seattle U, 3-5. And Wyoming volleyball traveled there and beat them 3-0 in a sweep. Moving on to Saturday, men's basketball beat Air Force 72-49. Women's basketball beat Air Force 72-48. Women's tennis versus Colorado was postponed, and all of these softball games on Saturdays were canceled. Volleyball had their second game of the matchup against Wyoming, lost 1-2-3. Moving on to Sunday, softball again had all their games canceled, and we're unsure of what will happen this next weekend with their games as well. Uh, Just yesterday, we kind of had an eventful uh, day where women's golf was at Bruin Wave in their first day and they tied for 12th. Women's basketball lost to Air Force 68 to 75 and men's basketball beat Air Force 74 to 44. All right, Rams fans, that's all I got for news. I wanna thank everyone for tuning in. And also if you miss extra sports in your life, we have three shows Monday, Wednesday and Thursdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Also, great content available at kcsufm.com. Thanks for listening. For KCSU Sports, I'm Jonathan Gillum, and I'll catch you next time. Today, I am joined by Colorado House Representative Brianna Titone, here to talk with us about the recently passed House Bill 21-1109, which she co-sponsored along with Representative Matt Soper. Ms. Titone, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So in your own words, what is this bill's main purpose? Well, um, House Bill 1109 is a bill that changes some of the parameters around the Broadband Deployment Board. And this is a a board of uh, industry people and uh, city and local officials that look at different areas of Colorado to see if they are served with internet or not. And the board has some issues with getting the internet grants out because there's, um, it's very complicated because there's a lot of providers and they don't always know where people are served and where they're not. And that's because the way that they normally do it is by census track blocks. And so, a census track may have one person with broadband internet in it, and the whole entire block gets marked as being served with internet. So there's a lot of people who may not have anything that are still getting marked as actually having service. So the changes we're making to the board uh, would allow them to uh, get maps from the industry people that want to participate in the grant program. And then using those maps, they'll be able to understand who has internet, at what speeds, how many people are, are served, 
and then create new maps to show areas where there are people who still need service. And then those areas can be better uh, accessed through the grant program to get the internet to those people. So how many Coloradoans are currently in the situation that the bill is attempting to remedy? Um, people living in places that the bill defines as critically unserved. Uh, I don't think we actually know. That's, that's kind of the crux of it. Um, the critically unserved areas, they are kind of elusive. We don't have those maps. And when we get the maps from the providers who are providing internet service, we'll know what homes they're actually connected to and which ones are not connected to. And every provider that participates in the program will be giving their maps uh, to the board and all that information will be aggregated so that way we'll be able to see where there's single providers, where there's multiple providers, what the speeds of those are, and then we'll be able to really quantify it. Because right now, I think there's a lot of estimates about how many people are really underserved, but it's, it's really hard to say specifically because some people have internet, but it's, it's really not very good and it's not what they're supposed to be getting. So if you pay for 25 megabits up, three down, and maybe you're only getting half of that, you know, are you really getting 25, three? That's, these are things that we need to address. And the, the board will require third-party uh, speed tests for any new grants that go out to make sure that any service that the board is giving money to to provide internet, that the internet that they're building out to people's homes is actually the speed that it's supposed to be. And that's really important because I don't, I don't know uh, how your internet is, but I know where I used to live and, and a lot of other places where I was paying for internet of a certain speed, but I could probably get half of that if I was lucky. The pandemic has made access to the internet more important um, with many people having to start working from home and such. Absolutely. Um, the pandemic has really exposed uh, this really big problem that we have uh, and, and our dependence on the internet where students are requiring it to do their work for school. Uh, more people are working from home. Uh, a lot of folks, especially in rural areas, are getting their uh, medical treatment and diagnoses and conversations with their doctors through telemedicine. And uh, all of these are dependent on the internet. And without a reliable high-speed connection, a lot of these things that we're trying to do really just aren't the quality that we would expect them to be. And students are uh, struggling trying to do their work uh, to get the assignments done. Uh, I know that I've, I've talked to some people that were using fast food joints for internet and, and going to different places where they can hook up to Wi-Fi and sit in their car because they just didn't have it where they were at home. And, you know, that's just unsustainable. We, we can't keep doing that to, uh, to students and, and to people trying to see their doctor or, you know, participate in a work meeting. 
Uh, people need internet. It's it's an essential resource that that everybody needs to have access to. Is there a timeline or expectation for when we'll start seeing the positive effects from this bill? We we are trying to get the uh, the bill passed as quickly as possible. That's why it was one of my first bills I I introduced. Um, we should be able to get through the process uh, fairly quickly. I think we have quite a bit of of support on both sides of the aisle for this. Uh, the governor is in favor of the bill. Uh, so once the governor signs it, then uh, we'll be able to start putting the, uh, the bill into effect, which will probably take a little bit of time and we'll probably get everything set up for the next cycle, um, which I believe starts in June. So we might be able to get that cycle as the first one, but uh, because we still need to collect the maps from the providers, uh, there may be about a year till the next cycle comes around that we're able to really uh, take full advantage of it. Some of the motivations behind this bill and uh, behind the Broadband Deployment Board is Echoing movements suggesting that the internet should be guaranteed as a human right, or it should be guaranteed somewhat by the government, um, such as Germany declaring it a human right in 2013. Would you agree or disagree with the idea that it should be a guaranteed right? And do you have any opinions regarded to that? I, I think that the internet should be something that comes into people's homes the same way that electricity and water come into people's homes. Uh, those are government provided services. Uh, electricity is, is a little bit of a, of a strange one that it's uh, heavily governmental regulated private industry that provides power, um, but essentially it's, it's regulated for the price by, by the government. Um, I think that you, know, you should get the highest speed possible and pay for usage, just like you would electricity or water. You wanna you know, run a bath every day, you'll pay for the bath that you run in the gallons of water that you use. Uh, if you wanna leave your lights on all day, you pay for the electricity and the lights you leave on. If you wanna stream video, then you could pay for that amount of usage just the same way, as long as it was a, a reasonable amount uh, that people paid it's becoming part of everybody's life and i i believe it should be i think that the federal level really needs to uh take the lead on this um because it's it's really difficult industry to really try to dictate that to because they have so much money and so much power that the uh, industry partners in uh, in broadband are not interested in giving up what they have uh, and putting a new system in place would probably take the the hand of federal government to to start making that change towards a, uh, that being a public utility. Are there any more plans you're working on in the future for uh, other ways to further expand access to broadband internet? Uh, currently, uh, not right now, but um, I think that as long as we uh, get through this bill and uh, we learn from you know anything that we missed, I'm sure I'll be 
working on some additional uh, legislation to try to uh, fill in the gaps or, or fix any mistakes we may make along the way. Uh, a lot of this legislation is not always perfect right out the bat. I mean, we're fixing a little bit of a detail that was passed in a bill just last year that we're making a bit of a change to that. So we've, we've already uh, found out that there's a better way to do it. So this is a, an evolution. This is a process that takes evolution, and uh, I'll continue to work on this as long as we can uh, get more people internet. And you know, once we start getting everyone served, we're going to have to look at the people who are getting the slowest internet and raising that up to to the level that hopefully the FCC deems to be a higher uh, amount of speed, which I suspect uh, we'll start to see that. Uh, later this year that the FCC will deem broadband internet to be a, a higher speed than it is currently in statute. All right, that is all the questions I have for today. Um, again, I have been joined by Colorado House Representative Brianna Titone. If you want to follow her work, you can find her on Twitter at brianna for colorado Ms. Titone, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. really appreciate the conversation. KCSU comes from the Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated with American Family Insurance, with offices located in Fort Collins and Greeley. Protection, peace of mind, and trust has been their priority since 1992. Learn more about Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated and American Family Insurance at lisarinkjob at ampfam.com. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard from Representative Brianna Titone and Ivy Winfrey. This is National News Highlights for Tuesday. The Biden administration is introducing new sanctions against Russia after Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was poisoned and detained. According to Courtney Subramanian from USA Today, the sanctions specifically target top figures who work closely with Russian President Vladimir Putin from, quote, accessing financial and property assets in the United States, end quote. Nerve agent Novikov is speculated to be what Navalny was poisoned with. He returned to Russia in January after receiving treatment related to the poisoning in Germany and was almost immediately detained for violating parole by receiving treatment. Navalny's arrest and detention have fueled many protests across the nation. 
FBI Chief Chris Wray testified Tuesday morning on questions related to extremism and the January Capitol riots. According to Eric Tucker at the Associated Press, in a live feed from National Public Radio, he faced questions about communication between Capitol Police and the FBI leading up to insurgency, and whether or not the FBI handled information warnings appropriately. Ray appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee to discuss whether or not the FBI properly addressed the threat of white supremacists and far-right mobs. In the hearings, Ray, fra- Ray faced harsh questioning about partisan differences in congressional access to information, including one Democratic senator claiming the questions from Democrats and requests from Democrats can take multiple years to be answered by the FBI, compared to almost immediate responses to questions from Republican Congress members. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island claimed that eight letters, including some from 2017, have not even been answered by the FBI. COVID-19 vaccines were rescued by boat after flooding in Kentucky. According to Rebecca Reese and Holly Silverman at CNN, not a single dose was lost thanks to the rescue efforts that retrieved vaccines from Lee County Health Department in Beattyville, Kentucky, to Wolf County, Kentucky. Heavy rains and snowmelt caused flooding, threatening power supplies at Lee County Health Department, which required a vaccine rescue team. Within 72 hours, some regions of Kentucky saw up to 10 inches of rain, one of the largest flash floods in recorded Kentucky history. Dr. Seuss Enterprises will discontinue the publication of six books, according to Bill Chappelle at National Public Radio. The books include If I Ran the Zoo, as well as And to Think I Saw It on Mulberry Street, which have faced criticism for racist depictions of black and Asian people. The other four titles are Miguelagat's Pool, Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. The decision to permanently halt productions of these titles was made in 2020, but the company only announced it Tuesday morning. March 2nd is celebrated as writer Dr. Seuss's birthday, and it is there- and is observed in classrooms across America by reading different books from his collection. Seuss has been criticized for performing in blackface and writing racist portrayals in books before, but Dr. Seuss Enterprises says the quote, Ceasing sales of these books is only part of our commitment and our broader plan to ensure Dr. Seuss Enterprises' catalog represents and supports all communities and families, end quote. Next up, we're going to be hearing an episode of Takes from the Anthropocene, I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for National News Highlights for Tuesday. Hello, KCSU. I'm Amanda Kowalski, and talking with me today about the environment is Charles Willis, who is a fellow anthropology major and classmate of mine. Hi. (laughs) So, Charlie. It's great to uh, be here. Awesome. (laughs) Uh, So you wanted to talk about the environment. What exactly are you highlighting for us today? Well, Amanda, taking this class has really got me fired up about the environment, just thinking about the future and how... One of the big changes that we need to make as a society is to really rethink our relationship to the environment, because I think just reform and systemic change without a direction, without a underlying philosophy as to where the environment fits is not going to be very effective moving forward. So you're making some you know, pretty bold claims here. How exactly do you propose that we do move forward here? Well, I think the big areas that stuck out to me just from this class were conservation. We really need to rethink conservation and the relationship between the environment and economics, as well as our approach to natural disasters. So when you say rethink conservation, do you do you want to move away from conservation? You know, wouldn't that be kind of damaging to the environment or are you talking about something else? Well, I think the the way that 
we've sort of approached conservation for the last hundred years has been to just cordon off an area, a wilderness area, and sort of preserve it from human activity. And one of the things that has really become apparent, especially during this very active wildfire season, is that the absence of management is just as bad as you know, overuse of a piece of land. And we read some some pretty interesting articles about this. There was one that was actually from the U.S. Forest Service by Lisi Crawl about this very problem of thinking of the wilderness as something separate from humanity and as humanity as some sort of inherently destructive factor in the environment when the reality is we are part of the environment and we can affect it for better or for worse. And just leaving these pieces of land aside to be untouched is equally as unhelpful. Another great article that talked about sort of different approaches is one by Daniel Wildcat and Raymond Parati, great names. (laughs) And they were, they were talking about doing their research was in Native American groups and their cultural approach to the environment and different practices that they've been using to sort of manage resources and create, for lack of a better term, like win-win relationships with the environment around them and their own society. And I think it just proves that, you know, we don't have to, you know, preserving the environment doesn't mean leaving it alone. Like we can continue to exist, coexist with the natural environment without disrupting it. And I think that's the big problem with the modern, especially the American conservation movement, is it's not really giving us that flexibility. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And so just to clarify, so you're saying that, you know, we shouldn't really be afraid of, of managing resources and ecosystems pretty carefully, right? Yeah. Okay. So now you mentioned this dichotomy between the economy and the environment. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? So one of the things during this presidential election that really stuck out to me was the way, especially Republicans have framed the sort of war between the economy and the environment. Whenever the left brings up environmental protection, it's seen as like destroying the economy or destroying economic opportunity. This is this is a false choice. This is a false dichotomy. And I think the the Republican Party has done a really good job of framing that debate in a way that shuts down any possibility of creating a more sustainable approach to industry. We, one of the big articles that we read this semester was by George Lakoff, who, I don't don't know if he invented this concept, but he, he studies the concept of framing and how you can, you can frame an idea such that people don't have to think about it by making certain associations and rhetoric you can shut down any debate because you're just making people look at it through a certain lens and they feel like they already know everything they need to know about it. And this is one area I feel like the American left and the environmental movement have done a poor job of attacking that framing that anything that's good for the environment is bad for the economy because that's simply not the case. And I don't think sustainability and economic growth are necessarily a mutually exclusive. I totally agree. So so if this framing tactic is, you know, underutilized by the left, how do, how do you think they they could begin to utilize it a little bit more? Is there a way to do that better than what they're doing right now? <laughs> well, I I noticed one thing during the debates was Biden talked a lot about reducing certain industries in favor of others. And I think the problem is when they say we're going to 
rollback fracking or rollback mining or whatever, people stop listening when they say that. And they say, oh, they're going to destroy the oil industry. They're going to destroy the mining industry or whatever. I would say just avoid that entirely. Just say, we're going to invest in renewable energy. We're going to invest in solar power. And instead, and don't even mention the industries that are going to be replaced. Because the reality is, you know, even if we do continue to use oil, eventually it's going to run out. We're going to find something to replace it anyway. So by targeting investment into renewable energy, we're just kind of hastening that process. I think that's a much better way of thinking about it than, oh, we're going to eliminate these industries that people are already in. I, I totally agree. I think I think that's a great idea, and I think that needs to be done more. So kind of switching tracks a little bit, how does this, all of these ideas, you know, of the environment and everything like that, how does that connect to natural disasters? Well, one thing that I hear over and over again about climate change is that natural disasters are getting more frequent and, and more intense. And you're already seeing that. The summer has been quite a roller coaster in terms of natural disasters. And if this class had one thesis, I would say it's that natural disasters are really man-made. So our current way of thinking about natural disasters is that they're sort of like acts of God. There's nothing we can do about them. And moving forward, I think we need to really start taking responsibility for the fact that no, natural disasters are getting more frequent and they're getting worse because of our own actions. And it's our responsibility to make sure that these don't destroy people's lives over and over again, instead of just, you know, actually holding, actually holding corporations accountable and creating safety nets and infrastructure to anticipate and effectively deal with these disasters. I think that's good. And I mean, there's a framing issue there with that, right? I mean, they're being framed as these, you know, acts of God, like you said. Exactly. And if there's one thing that we did learn from our own Dr. Brown's Standing in the Need and to a lesser extent, Mountains Beyond Mountains, it's that these natural disasters, they don't come from nowhere, for one thing. And what makes them destructive is human action, not necessarily the raw environmental impact. And when you say human action, are you talking specifically about climate change or are you like, are there other things that make disasters worse? Both. It's the way that we respond to natural hazards. And by thinking of them as these rare, tragic things, we're really limiting ourselves in terms of how well we can respond to those. Okay, so just to, you know, wrap everything up, do you think there are some changes ahead for us? You know, are, are we going to change these frames? Are we going to talk about the environment and natural disasters differently in the future? Or do you think we're going to stay on, on this track? I certainly hope things change. Um, it's really up to us. And by us, I mean, like our generation to keep these things in mind and create social change as much as uh, political change, because that's what underlies any political policy or and, you know, without the public opinion and the the cultural framework regulations, we're not going to be able to regulate our way out of climate change. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and that's why, you know, classes like the one we're in, you know, public anthropology are, are so important now. Right. I mean, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all. That's all the questions I have. Is there anything else you want to leave with a, a final note or anything like that? I think I covered pretty much everything I wanted to talk about. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks to KCSU for letting us do this. Um, we're really excited to be here.
Hey, Julia, what's going on? Did you get my voicemail? No, what's up? It was literally breaking news. Okay. Do you just not keep up with the news? I mean, I try to, but you know I'm a busy guy. Do you have time to listen to the news? I don't see why not. Do you have a solution? Dude, every weekday, 9 to 9, every odd hour on KCSU, you can listen to local news as well as arts, sports, and science. Okay, every weekday from 9 to 9. I think I can fit that in my schedule. Only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. In five minutes, we'll be hearing new tech updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports a cumulative total of 2,400 cases of COVID-19 since May 2020. This includes an increase of several hundred cases in the past week. Larimer County has moved back into a medium risk score after briefly moving into the high risk category last week. There are just under 20,000 cases of COVID-19 on the county, and around 225 people have died so far. On the state-style framework, Larimer County is at level yellow. Concern, and there are over 300 outbreaks in the county. Over 93,000 people have received vaccinations in Larimer County. In the past 24 hours, 44 new cases were reported, and the county currently has a 14-day case rate of almost 300 per 100,000 residents. In the past two weeks, every day has seen a minimum of 15 new cases, but positive results have never surpassed 10% of results for all tests administered in a day. 13 COVID-19 patients are currently in the hospital. Hospital utilization is at 60%, and ICU utilization is at 66%. The county is at a plateau in new cases, but there is potential for a new increase, so it's important to remain cautious. Hospital admissions are down drastically as well. Statewide, there are nearly 425,000 cases of COVID-19, and over 2.5 million Coloradans have been tested. According to a new press release, 1 in 194 Coloradans have been infected with a COVID-19 variant. There are almost 6,000 recorded deaths among cases, and over 5,800 were a direct result of COVID-19. Colorado currently has over 3,800 outbreaks. Nationwide, there are over 28.6 million cases of COVID-19, with an increase of 56,000 on Monday, a 21% decrease in the past two weeks. Over 514,000 people have died, including an additional 1,400 on Monday, a 17% decrease in the past 14 days. Hospitalizations are down by 29% in the same time period. Internationally, over 100 million people have been infected with COVID-19. In the U.S., pharmaceutical company Merck is planning to support Johnson & Johnson in vaccine manufacturing. This will allow a sharp boost in vaccine supplies, allowing more people to receive doses in a shorter period of time. Merck and Johnson & Johnson are competitors, making their collaboration in this effort historic. The only way for those not yet eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine to protect themselves and others from virus transmission and complications is by washing your hands for 20 seconds regularly, using hand sanitizer, wearing a face mask or cloth face covering, avoiding touching your face, and staying at home when possible. Information from this segment was gathered from the CSU COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the New York Times, the Washington Post, National Public Radio, and the Centers for Disease Control. For information on vaccine eligibility, go to covid19.colorado.gov. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. If you missed any part of our show so far, check us out on Spotify or online at kcsufm.com news. We'll be right back with tech news updates.
this is my most brilliant creation yet. Yes, master. Igor, hand me the science truth. What about the sprig of a trivia plant? Good idea. Now for the gas of laughter. You forgot the frog's breath. Stand back. Yes, it's alive. It's alive. It's science matters. Coming up next. Join me, DJ Attorney at Law. And me, DJ Pompey. We'll catch you there for a truly electrifying time. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard COVID-19 updates. In five minutes, we'll be hearing weird news with Ivy Winfrey. So stay tuned on a 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Tuesday. TikTok will pay out $92 million in a settlement related to theft of personal data. According to Bobby Allen at National Public Radio, this amount will settle dozens of lawsuits claiming that the app uses facial recognition technology without consent and harvests personal user data, including that from minors. TikTok commented on the matter saying that, quote, rather than go through lengthy litigation, we'd like to focus our efforts on building a safe and joyful commu- experience for the TikTok community, end quote. The Federal Communications Commission approved $50 per month subsidies for low-income households, according to Brian Fung at CNN Business. This broadband subsidy program targets households currently struggling to maintain internet access during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Emergency Broadband Benefit Program has a budgeted $3.2 billion and will support eligible households with $50 in support, and in tribal areas, that support may rise up to $75 depending on circumstances. The program aims to end the digital divide, a concept describing a lack of internet access among certain communities. This program is essential due to so many Americans continuing or starting to work online, as well as vaccine registration efforts being performed online. A digital birth control app just received FDA clearance to market itself as an effective birth control method. According to Nicole Westman at The Verge, period tracking app Clue is launching a digital birth control feature it says can can prevent pregnancy, based on information about the user's period start date using statistical modeling. Clue claims a 92% overall effectiveness rating, but says when used under perfect circumstances, it is 97% effective. Then the method used to evaluate this was tested by researchers at Georgetown University. Natural Cycles was the first digital platform to be approved to market itself as birth control, and this program was this program required daily temperature readings and was controversial when it first received clearance in 2018. That's all for tech news. We'll be right back on the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. If you miss any part of today's show, check us on Spotify at KCSU News or online at kcsufm.com news. Hey, so I'm having some trouble with my streaming service. Please select from the following options. Can I just talk to a person? Sorry, that is not an option. Please select from the following options. Seriously? You called? No, no, not you. I'm just sick of robots, and I just want to listen to some music. You know what? We 
This is DJ Silent G, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins, operated by actual human beings. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes we need to bask in something that's weird. So here's some of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. A Pennsylvania man has been arrested after falsely reporting his car stolen to police and then attempting to Google how to destroy his own car. According to CBS Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania State Police say 54-year-old Donald Cassidy of West Newton reported his vehicle as stolen early February. A few days later, the vehicle was found off White Ridge Road in Mount Pleasant Township. Police say it had been set on fire and was unrecognizable. A VIN number on the back of the vehicle matched the one belonging to Cassidy, police say. After taking his phone and executing a search warrant, police say a look through his Google history turned up the search, quote, how to set your car on fire and make it look like an accident, end quote. He's facing charges of arson, false reports, and risking a catastrophe. Japan's Minister of Gender Equality has joined a group of lawmakers opposing changing a law that requires married couples to have the same last name. According to the BBC, a new proposed legal change would repeal an 1896 law that requires married couples to have the same surname, a law which campaigners argued was discriminatory because couples would almost always use the husband's surname. Japan's Minister for Women's Empowerment and Gender Equality, Tamayo Murakawa, joined other members of the Liberal Democratic Party, of which he is a part of, in signing onto a letter asking members of the government to reject the rule change. Murakawa says that her opposition of the bill is due to personal reasons, and that it would not affect her duties despite critics arguing it directly contradicts the purpose of her position. A challenge over the law requiring married couples to share a surname was previously brought to the Japanese Supreme Court in 2015. The case was brought by three individual women and one couple in a civil partnership, who argued that the law was unconstitutional, discriminatory, and archaic. Judge Itsuro Terada noted at the time that among the Japanese, there already was informal use of maiden names, which eased the impact of the law. He said it was up to lawmakers to decide on whether to pass new legislation on separate spousal names. Mrs. Murakawa uses her maiden name at work, but her legal married surname and official documents. A doctor is being investigated by the Medical Board of California after he appeared in a court Zoom call while in the middle of performing surgery. According to the Associated Press, Dr. Scott Green appeared Thursday for his Sacramento Superior Court trial, held virtually because of the coronavirus pandemic from an operating room. He was dressed in surgical scrubs with a patient undergoing the procedure just out of view. Green told the clerks that he was still available for trial despite him being in the middle of surgery. The clerk reminded Green that the proceedings were being live-streamed because traffic trials are required by law to be open to the public, and Green said that he understood. Green said during the live stream, quote, I have another surgeon right here who's doing the surgery with me, so I can stand here and allow them to do the surgery also, end quote. The judge said that he didn't think it was appropriate to conduct a trial under the circumstances and postponed the trial to a later date. The California Medical Board said it would look into the incident, saying it, quote, expects physicians to follow the standard of care when treating their patients, end quote. That's all the weird news I have for today. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins.
Hello, this is Justin. And this is Allie. And we're from the band Zebrahead. Zebra and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU. Yeah. And now, for the weather. This week is going to be pretty warm, with most days reaching a high of around 60 degrees. Today, skies were sunny, with a high of 60 and a low of 27, with low wind speeds. Wednesday will be about the same, and Thursday, some clouds will roll in with heavier winds, and rain rain showers will with a high of 44 and a low of 31. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Review, only in 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. If you missed the show, you can always check us out on our Spotify at KCSU News or online at kcsufm.com news. Information for today's weather segment was gathered from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Korn, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Matt Guzmarati, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.